This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. And this week we're making history with our 52nd weekly episode, one year after we first launched. If you've not subscribed to the English Heritage Podcast, make sure you do and you'll get brand new episodes in your feed every Thursday. Now this week we're discussing the inspirational women with a connection to English Heritage sites who played their part in changing English history. Joining me are two doctors and if you'd like to introduce yourselves... I'm Megan Leyland. I'm a senior properties historian at English Heritage. And I'm Olivia Fryman. I'm curator of collections and interiors for Elton Palace, Downhouse and Marble Hill. Thank you both for joining us on the podcast. It's lovely to have you along. Now, each of you has nominated two inspirational female figures each who you feel have left their mark on history. And you're going to talk about their stories and also the sites associated with them. So, Megan, first of all, if we could start with your first nominee. So my first woman is Henrietta Howard, Countess of Suffolk. And what is she mostly known for? And who is she? Henrietta Howard was an incredible figure in the Georgian court and builder of Marble Hill, which English Heritage now care for, a fantastic suburban villa in Richmond. And she has a really fascinating life story full of highs and lows. She was born to a titled and respected family and so in theory could have had a promising start but the death of her parents at a very early age saw her plunged into some quite tricky situations early on. She married in 1706 probably with the hope actually of finding some security after that rough start but she was sadly disappointed. Charles Howard her husband has been described as intempered, obstinate, drunken and extravagant. And Henrietta's friend perhaps summed it up, thus they were married and thus they hated each other for the rest of their lives. And actually here's where Henrietta's story starts becoming really fascinating in ways because she had this awful relationship but didn't sort of give in to it and try to find a way to a better life. She saved up all the money she could and travelled to the Hanoverian court. This was the home of the future kings and queens of England. So it's the Georgian period then, Megan. She's born in 1689, but mostly experiences uh, her adult life in the Georgian period. Yes. So Henrietta, sort of seeking a way out of poverty and out of this awful life circumstance with her husband, travelled to the Hanoverian court, um, so Germany, uh, in the hope of currying favour with the future royal family who lived there. And it was a risk travelling over there. Her husband went with her, but one which ultimately paid off. In 1714, George I came to England and took the royal throne. He ushering in the Georgian age. And she returned with him and became a member of the household of the Princess of Wales, later Queen Caroline. And at some point, mistress to the Prince of Wales, the future George II. 
Unfortunately, her husband ended up in the household of George I, which perhaps offered some protection from the dreadful relationship that they were in together. And while at court, some really interesting things happened during this period of her life. She legally separated from her husband in 1728, which was a really unusual step for the time. She was also given a gift from the prince. It wasn't unusual for mistresses to receive gifts. And she used this to build a home to start yet again another life. She started building Marble Hill on the banks of the River Thames from 1724. And upon leaving the court in 1734, so she, she left the household of the princess and the prince and started a life there, a happier life. Her husband by that time had died and she lived there on the banks of the River Thames. She remarried again. She had her niece and nephew stay with her, her great niece, and filled her house with a vibrant cast of characters and great literary minds of the age, politicians and the such like. So three husbands after the first one was a terrible waster. An abusive relationship, as we'd probably term it today. She was a mistress to the Prince of Wales and then had a happier second marriage after she'd retired from the royal court and started a life at Marble Hill. So different relationships. Her second one was definitely a happier one and you see in their correspondence her her second husband George calling her sort of saying my life my soul my joy I can't be at Marble Hill when you're not here because it's it's not so lovely without you so a relationship's full of highs and lows and very different in each of their aspects. How would you sort of characterise her life then is it one of managing relationships? Yeah, I think she was certainly very astute at doing that and was very perceptive about the people around her. She was actually um, known as the Swiss for her sort of ability to remain neutral and impartial. She was quick-witted and intelligent. And the nature of marriage in that period was very uneven and she had to navigate that. But she also surrounded herself with a fascinating circle of people who at various points come in and out of her life to support her um, and help her in various ways. What do you admire most about her then? Her ability to take control of a situation and find a way to a better life and her perseverance in doing that um, and her intelligence in, and her perceptiveness I think is, is really admirable and her resilience. Mm. She experienced loss, she experienced hardship at points she experienced really challenging relationships in the hub of the royal court and that takes great resilience. Did she lose any children? She did have a child and she did lose him in in a couple of ways actually. At that time children were in theory sort of the property of the husband in a relationship and when the marriage between her and her first husband broke down they had a young child at the time the child went with her husband Charles and you have this sort of round of letters where you sort of see him becoming almost a pawn in this marital breakdown of a relationship and they, they don't seem to have ever really been reconciled and he died reasonably young. I think that's something that a lot of people can sympathise with today. It's not mm. a new thing, obviously. What's her legacy then or is that the same question really as what do you admire in her? I think her legacy is really interesting because often Henrietta has been portrayed as Henrietta Howard, mistress of George II. And actually, she's so much more than that. 
and she's so remarkable and interesting as a person and in fact the concept of a mistress is a fascinating one for the period in that actually it's as much of a court position as the sort of salacious relationships that we might imagine today though of course the court did speculate but really in some ways her fascinating legacy is the buildings that she left behind Marble Hill is an incredible surviving example of a Palladian villa. Palladian, so that's inspired by ideas of ancient Greece and Rome and obsessed with symmetry and proportion. And it's a wonderful example of that kind of architecture. And the gardens which surround them as well, a really fascinating example of a garden of that time. Mm. And we're actually doing a project at the moment, Marble Hill Revived, which is hoping to ensure that legacy continues into the present day. And we're working really hard to bring the house and gardens back to its former glory and populating the house with those stories. And to really look at that building, not only as an amazing example of architecture, but as a testament to everything that Henrietta went through to get there. Lovely. Well, thanks very much for your first nominee. Let's move on to Olivia. Your first nominee is Lady Anne Clifford, but she is connected to two locations which are both quite hard to pronounce if you don't know how to pronounce the spelling. So if you want to spell those out for us first... Yes, yeah, so Lady Anne Clifford is connected with two of English Heritage's most spectacular ruined castles, Bruff, which is spelt B-R-O-U-G-H, and Broom, which is spelt B-R-O-U-G-H-A-M, and they're both in Cumbria, and they're both very much well worth a visit. Hmm. Briefly, what's Lady Anne Clifford's story? She's born so, in 1590, I believe? She is, yes. Lady Anne Clifford's born in 1590 at Skipton Castle in North Yorkshire. And she's born into a very wealthy, ancient family. Her father, George Clifford, was the third Earl of Cumberland. And he was a very extravagant courtier who actually rose to fame at the court of Elizabeth I as a skilled jouster. And Anne spent much of her childhood at the court and she became a favourite of the Queen. Anne's two brothers died young, and this was where the beginning of the trouble started. She, being the only surviving heir, should have been in line to inherit her father's estates in the north. And this was a huge area of land, which included five great medieval castles. However, when her father died in 1605, he decided to leave the estates to his brother Francis and his heirs. And this was actually in breach of an entail that dated back to the 14th century that actually stated that the lands and properties of the Clifford family should pass to the eldest heir, whether they were male or female. And Anne, not surprisingly, was very unhappy about this and she resolved to fight for her inheritance. So was she ahead of her time in that way? Yeah, the entail is quite interesting because the usual system would have been that the uh, estates would have been inherited by the, the eldest male heir. So in leaving the estates to his brother, her father was actually following a more traditional way of passing on land and property. But the entail, which Anne sort of clung on to throughout her life as this document that proved her right to her estates, very much went against that. And she was able to use that entail. She, she compiled this huge three-volume book on the family history of the Cliffords and uh, showing how all the land had passed down through the family. And um, she used that with this 14th century entail to try and prove her right to the lands. That's um, an incredible piece of homework, really, when you bear in mind that that goes back to the 14th century. Uh, absolutely. And here we are in the, you know, when she's when she's born, it's 1590. So, yeah, that 
the uh, the book that Anne actually created, the, the great volumes that she created, are still one of the kind of key sources for historians on the Clifford family today. So they really are. It really was an, a very impressive piece of historical research she was able to compile. So in some respects, she was almost like a proto-female lawyer and historian in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in that respect, she's incredibly interesting because it's not two roles that you would normally think about as particularly female in that period. Mm. Does she have children? Does she marry? She does, yes. So Anne was actually provided with a dowry of £15,000. So although she was denied her estate, she was still quite an attractive heiress. And in 1609, she married Richard Sackville, the third Earl of Dorset. Unfortunately, he was rather a notorious wastrel and spendthrift, and they didn't have a particularly happy marriage. They did have five children together, three sons who very sadly died in childhood, and two daughters who survived both of them. But that wasn't her only marriage. She actually, after Sackville died in 1624, and married again, this time to Philip Herbert, the fourth Earl of Pembroke. And they had another two children. But he was also a widow, and he already had many children of his own. And unfortunately, again, the marriage wasn't very happy, and they soon became estranged. And is that the end of her marriage story? That's the end of her marriage story, but it's certainly not the end of her her story in terms of her inheritance. So Anne, throughout all of this time, had been fighting in the courts to gain control of her lands from her uncle. And she found herself constantly blocked by James I, her husband, even Richard Sackville, who constantly argued with her, trying to get her to take a cash settlement instead of the lands, principally because he was so in debt, he wanted the money for himself. But she resisted and resisted. And finally, in 1643, her uncle's son, Henry, died without any heirs and the estates at last reverted back to Anne. Ah. But at this time, of course, England was in the midst of the Civil War and it was not actually until six years later that Anne felt it was safe enough to leave London and return to her estates in the north. And actually, it's the last 30 years of her life that are really, really interesting. And she was incredibly creative. When she returned to the north, she actually found that her estates had been very badly neglected And many of the castles were in ruins or in very, very poor condition. And so gradually what she began to do was to start to restore them. And so over the following 27 years, she put in place this amazing projects where she restored the castles, paying great attention to their antiquity. She was very, very sympathetic in the way she approached their restoration. And she travelled between these castles across her estates, sort of exercising her influence and authority across her lands that's a sort of end. It's quite a happy end. She died at Broom Castle in 1676 in the room where her father had been born. So in a way, despite the many, many struggles that she went through to regain control of her lands, she did so in the end and she was able to enjoy almost 30 years sort of ruling over her estates as she should always have been able to do. Megan, you've been listening on to the story there of Lady Anne Clifford. It sounds like there's a bit of a common theme between Henrietta Howard from Marble Hill and Lady Anne Clifford at Bruff and Broom Castles there. Common theme of the terrible husbands, but eventually finding a place to call home. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think their resilience and perseverance in continuing after these bad relationships and, and carrying on and actually coming out of the other side with places to call their own is is fascinating. And questioning the sort of patriarchal norm at that time as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think in many ways, they grip an understanding of what the norm was and how they can fight for their right to property or how they can use the law or status in clever ways to gain property is also a really, really interesting point and commonality. Hmm. Olivia, what do you think uh, Lady Anne Clifford's legacy is and what do you admire about her? Well, I think her key legacies are, on the one hand, there's a literary legacy. She left behind a really fascinating diary and many letters that give us a really, really interesting insight into her life and character. But then, of course, there's her architectural legacy. And I think that that's probably the most significant for me. She had a really strong sense of the past and respect for the historic buildings that she came to own. And it's really down to her that we owe the partial survival of Brough and Broom Castles and also the survival of Skipton Castle, the castle where she was born. And she did take great pains to restore them in a style that was in keeping with their existing buildings. And so I think, you know, Brough and Broom, those castles give such a good sense of the great fortresses that once defended Northern England. And their survival really is entirely down to her. How well have they Um, survived today? So they are both ruined castles, but large proportions of the buildings survive. And you can get a great sense of how uh, impressive they were as structures and how they must have dominated the landscape that surrounded them. Lovely. Let's move on to the next one for Megan. Uh, Your second nominee, please. And where is this? So I'm going to talk about Elizabeth Talbot, Countess of Shrewsbury, otherwise known as Bess of Hardwick. And she was born in the 1520s to a minor landowning Derbyshire family who owned a small manor house at Hardwick. And from this relatively modest beginning, Bess went on to become one of the richest, most well-connected and well-known women of the Elizabethan era. And she actually returned in her later years back to Hardwick, that, that small manor house which her family had owned. She would have been, I think, in her 60s by this time. And just as her life had transformed and her fortunes had transformed, she transformed that family home from a modest manor house into a fashionable new home, drawing on the latest ideas in architecture of the time. So she was very much into architecture, design, and again, if I'm not pushing things too far, really creating a a wonderful home to live in. Yeah, and I think that importance of having a home, and actually, by the time she gets to Hardwick, a home of her own was really crucial. As we talk about the different relationships which women had with men around them, you know, marriage was one of sort of the routes that you went down as a woman of the period. She had four each are different in their own way. Each brought different things to her life. Her first marriage was at a young age. She was 15 when she was married to Robert Barlow and he died very soon after. She later married the wealthy and ambitious William Cavendish. She was 19, he was 40. And here we start seeing a bit of the best we know by the end of her life. She took control of his estates and household and her detail-oriented and astute management of money and property start to come to the fore. And she also began to indulge what would become a lifelong passion for building. The couple purchased Chatsworth House. And she went and transformed this and rebuilt this and was really engaged in that change there. Where's Chatsworth House? um, Chatsworth House is Derbyshire. 
and Chatsworth really starts along that road of Bess becoming, as she's sometimes known as Building Bess, this remarkable architectural patron of the era. Sadly, her husband died. William Cavendish died. She outlived him as well. And she remarried again, Sir William St. Lowe. And this seems to have been a happy relationship. Bess was showered with gifts from cucumbers to headwear. And her husband affectionately described her as the chief overseer of my works at Chatsworth. So her building continues. And here we see not only a rise in fortunes, but also in her social fortunes. And by this time, she's come into contact with really the highest parts of society. And she rose to the important position of Lady of the Privy Chamber to Queen Elizabeth I. So that's the most powerful woman in the land. And their relationship was hot and cold at points, but undoubtedly a close one. Two strong women, um, by the sounds of things. Two strong women. And then, lo and behold, it happens again. Her husband dies. So she experiences great loss in her life. How many husbands and lost? We've had three husbands so far, and we're about to come to the fourth. And sadly, the fourth husband, the relationship was not so much of a happy one. It start, may have started so. And, you know, Elizabeth I keeps track of all this as, as she's remarrying. And she describes after the death of Bess's third husband, I've been glad to see my lady St. Lowe, but now more desirous to see my lady Shrewsbury. So <laughs> Bess remarries. She marries George Talbot, the sixth Earl of Shrewsbury, and reached really the dazzling heights of the title of Countess. So we've gone from modest beginnings to great wealth to title... But this marriage was not necessarily a happy one and it did deteriorate over time, probably for a host of reasons. It was put under incredible financial and sort of personal pressure by the 15-year supervision of the abdicated Mary Queen of Scots. Bess was constantly building and I think her husband wasn't always wild on the amount of money she was spending doing all this. It was her own sort of building at that time. And behind the scenes, Bess married one of her daughters, Charles Stuart, Earl of Lennox, and the heirs of this marriage would have a claim to the English throne. So all of this seemed to have put pressure on their relationship. And one of their homes, Sheffield Castle at the time, was described as a hell, effectively. And they weren't getting on very well. And it got to the point that in 1584, when their marriage was at an all-time low, her husband sent men to terrify Bess's tenants into paying their rents to him, attacking her sons. He rode to Chatsworth, where she was, with 40 armed men to try and forcibly occupy the house. So it didn't go well. But actually, in the end, when this all sort of this is all in the public eye as well, you know, Bess is a prominent person at court. Bess comes out of it okay by the end. Chatsworth is not going so well, but she turns her sights to Hardwick. She's got an insatiable appetite for building, has Bess. Is that her key legacy, would you say, Hardwick Old Hall, out of all the properties that she had a hand in? Oh gosh, yes. I think Hardwick Old Hall is incredible, but she didn't stop there. And by this time, remember, she's she's not a young woman anymore. She's building Hardwick Old Hall and it's really innovative and creative in her ideas. And while she's finishing off that, she sets her sights a few metres away upon a new building project, which is, can be her own. It's not determined by a previous structure that she needs to alter. She's widowed and she builds a completely new building, all of her own, which really is an incredibly important example of Elizabethan architecture and surmounted on the top with ES, her initials, which became sort of to everyone who comes and visit that this is her creation. This is her legacy. This is the result. Actually, in some ways, it's similar to Henrietta Howard, who we spoke about earlier, the result of all this trouble and highs and lows in her life. And she ends with this spectacular building. 
How do they survive these twin properties? So Hardwick Old Hall, which is the property which Bess remodelled her family home that she altered, is in a ruined state now, but you can still walk around it and get a sense of the grandeur and how it may have looked with bits of plasterwork still clinging just about onto the walls. And the property she built just metres away is, is still there for you to walk around and furnished and roofed, so you can get a real sense of this home that Bess created. Bess of Hardwick, how would you characterise her? What do you What do you admire about her? And is she similar in some ways, to your previous choice, Henrietta Howard. Yeah, I admire Bess for so many reasons. And I think there are certainly parallels to their story, sort of the great highs and lows, and in many ways, the happy ending. And she was incredibly ambitious and kept striving for what she was entitled to and what she wanted. And she kept striving for more. And I think that's really admirable. Let's move on to Olivia's second nominee. And we fast forward a little bit into time now. What period are we in now? Who are we talking about and which English heritage location? So we're now in the 19th century. The second woman that I would like to talk about is Emma Darwin, who is a very different character to the woman we've already discussed, but I think she's incredibly interesting. Emma is, of course, the wife of her much more famous husband, Charles Darwin. She was born in 1808 and she was the eighth and youngest child of Josiah Wedgwood I, who founded the famous Etruria Works in Stoke-on-Trent in Staffordshire. She grew up at nearby Mare Hall, part of a large, lively and liberal family with strong links to the intellectual elite of the county. In 1839, she married her first cousin, Charles Darwin, and she'd actually spent quite a great deal of time with Charles as a child. And first off, they moved to a rented house in Gower Street in London, but then seeking more space and more quiet than London could provide, they moved to Down House, which was a large property with extensive grounds on the outskirts of the village of Down in Kent. It's interesting that she marries her first cousin, Yes, yes, it's not unusual. It's not unusual at that point. And I I suppose it wasn't unusual for the previous women we've talked about in terms of the period that they lived in. It was absolutely not unusual for cousins to marry in that period. But it actually, interestingly, in the case of Charles and Emma, it was something that Charles later came to worry about. Because he developed his theory of evolution, he came to see that there was potentially something problematic about marrying a close blood relation. And he did worry about the fact that he'd married Emma, who was, of course, his first cousin. And what is she best known for then? I mean, obviously, apart from being the wife of the father of modern biology and the father of evolution. But what other things does she bring to the table? Well, I think that's the interesting thing. Emma isn't actually a particularly well-known figure. And of course, what we do know her for is mostly relates to her position as the wife of this great scientist. But I think it should also be remembered that Emma was from a wealthy and influential family in her own right. She was well-educated, she was well-travelled, and she was very interested in politics and European affairs. And actually, there were many distinguished figures such as Byron, Wordsworth and Florence Nightingale that she counted among her friends. But I think the key thing that we need to celebrate about Emma Darwin is that really she provided such an important role as Charles's wife and really was the person that enabled him to work, to research and to come up with his great theories. Charles actually wasn't even sure he wanted to marry at all in the first place. And he famously drew up a list of the pros and cons of married life. And he writes that I'm very worried I'm going to have to, I'm going to have less money to spend on books. But in the end, he rather romantically concludes that a wife would make a better companion than a dog. 
And he wanted someone to make a home with. And actually, I think that's very much what Emma really provided. And he also believed that she would, as he wrote to her following their engagement, he believed that she would humanise him and teach him that there was a greater happiness than building theories and accumulating facts in silence and solitude. And so I think Emma really did just do that. There were real bonds of affection between them and they deeply loved their children. They actually had 10 children, eight of whom survived into childhood. And so you have to imagine Down House is a very lively place. There were eight children running around. and By Victorian standards, Charles and Emma were very liberal parents. But of course, it was also the place where Darwin studied and wrote. So I think what you get at Down is this amazing combination of a family life and a great scientific life coexisting very, very harmoniously. Olivia, the marriage vows of in sickness and in health, I do. Those are quite important in this relationship as well, aren't they? Absolutely. Yes. Charles Darwin suffered many long periods of ill health. And it was very much down to Emma to nurse him through those times, to keep him going, to keep him working, keep him writing. He was actually very, very ill at various points. And we don't actually know quite what was wrong with him. There are various theories, but it really was Emma's care, her love, her attention. She was there to soothe him in the evenings, to read to him, to play piano to him. She really tried to support him through these very difficult times and enabling him to work and achieve everything that he did. So what is her overall legacy, would you say? It sounds to me that she was very much a kind of traditional wife in a sense. I think she was quite a traditional wife. But I think there's a couple of things that I really admire about Emma. You know, firstly, she was the mother of 10 children. And, you know, she perhaps wasn't your average Victorian mother. She was very liberal and she gave her children great freedoms. We know, for example, that the children had a a wooden slide that they put on the stairs at Down House. And uh, there are actually records of Emma herself and the governess trying it out. And so they had even a sort of indoor playground at Down. And I think the other thing on that is that, you know, she, like many of our women, she was very resilient. She also endured much sadness. She lost her sister when her sister was quite young and two of her children in infancy. And then in particular, she, Charles and Emma were extremely sad when their 10-year-old daughter, Annie, very sadly died. So despite all of these things, she was, you know, she was very resilient. She carried on. She supported Charles through all of these things. And I think perhaps the key thing about her support of his work is that she actually found Charles's sort of theories quite difficult. She found his growing scepticism about religion very hard to take and it caused her great pain and that in turn caused Charles much sadness too. Emma was particularly worried by Charles's rejection of the idea of the afterlife, which in her eyes gave her the reassurance that they would never be parted, that they would spend eternity together. So in some ways, Charles's work would have been quite difficult for her to sort of intellectually support, but she nevertheless provided as much support to him as she could. And then I think also there were the inconveniences of living with a man who was always experimenting. And sometimes even in the house, we know that Charles conducted experiments with plants in the living room and that he was also occasionally prone to boil up the carcasses of pigeons with the help of his butler so that he could examine their skeletons. So there must have been some challenges there as well. I can imagine, and especially with all those children running around and potentially interfering as well. You talked about some of the common themes there. What are the common themes as well between the four women that we've talked about? Well, I think one of the key things is that All of these women were, of course, born into a degree of wealth and status, and they had privileged upbringings and 
a good degree of education that afforded them opportunities that other women might not necessarily have had. So when we think about their achievements, I think it's very important to remember that they did come from a place of wealth, status and some opportunity. In the case of Lady Anne Clifford, Bess of Hardwick and Henrietta Howard, I think the key thing that really ties them together is this idea of their architectural legacy. They were all patrons who built great houses and provided homes for themselves. And they were, of course, not just creating a kind of safe space, although that was obviously very important, but they were also creating a very public statement of their achievements and of their kind of social standing. And I think that that very much contradicts the traditional view of architecture and building as something that is only for men. And then I think there is one other connection between these four women is that they are incredibly resilient. They're all face challenges in different ways. And yet, despite that, they're all very determined. They're all very resilient and they were able to overcome many great difficulties and sadnesses in their lives. Would you enhance or expand on that at all, Megan, in terms of the character traits, especially? Because we're talking about yeah, a, a, think... a, a wide range of historical periods here, really, from sort of the 1520s up until, well, 1896, when Emma Darwin dies. Yeah, and I think we certainly can find common character traits across them. I think what Olivia's just been talking about, about perseverance in the face of adversity or challenges, very much resonates across the, all of the women we've spoken about. Many of these women fought for their rights to land, to property, to safe, for safety, for independence in a time when society meant that this could be challenging and sometimes actually and very difficult to reconcile with the law of the period. And I think ambition is there as well. And I think ambition is a very interesting word. We don't have to look far in the media today to see commentary on how ambitious women potentially are portrayed in both positive and negative ways. And, you know, that was certainly true thinking of Bess of Hardwick in some ways, actually. There's definitely a long legacy of being her being quite a shrewd, manipulative woman, um, <laughs> probably inherited um, from those in her life that felt felt wrong and perpetuated by historians over the years. But I think these women's ambition to take hold of opportunities, building these enormous houses and statements of their achievement, as Olivia said, to seeking a better life, to simply finding happiness, be, having an ambition just to be happy, to have a great family. And that ambition, be it building an enormous house, be it to small changes in our lives, um, is something I think which resonates today and across everyone we've spoken about. And I suppose the last thing is intelligence. A lot of these women were incredibly smart in different ways. Their traditional intelligence, sort of that grappling with law, property rights, grappling with science and philosophy and emotionally intelligent, practically intelligent. And so across them, I think these traits really do shine through. And it's not hard to see when you pull all these together that these were women who achieved incredible things throughout their lives. Is English Heritage working to unearth any further hidden histories? In terms of women's history, we're always looking for new stories about these great female characters 
that we can tell at our sites and through all of the information that we have online. And actually, as Olivia has highlighted, the stories we've told today are perhaps of some of the women who are more visible because of their wealth, because of the buildings they left behind, because of their status. And the recovery of their stories has undoubtedly been really important in telling a fuller version of the past that really begins to question the traditional notions of what women did. But actually, these are just a small percentage of the stories out there. You know, we've always been half of the population and they represent a tiny fraction of lived experience. So whenever we undertake new research, we try and explore the whole story, not just the obvious or dominant stories, but those which perhaps we have to find in more spidery ways or perhaps which history is previously deemed insignificant. There are some amazing stories of lesser known women out there, from the weeding women who did backbreaking work in gardens at our sites, to the housekeepers and cooks at Audley End, to the nurses at Rest Park during the First World War. The list goes on, and there are so many out there that we're continually trying to bring to light. As we tie up these themes and these threads of these four women together, we have identified a lot of commonality. Do you think they were successful despite the limits placed on them by society? Yeah, if I could go first on that one, I I think that they certainly were. I mean, there were very strong notions of what a woman should be in the past. And many of these women, they managed to achieve great things despite that. And that was very much through their strength of character, their determination and their resilience. So absolutely, I think they really did manage to achieve a great deal. I completely agree with Olivia and undoubtedly gender did play a role in shaping their lives and the directions it took and the opportunities they had but they did still manage to achieve things and I think it really shows the difference between sort of perceptions both from the time and perpetuated even today of what women should and could do and the lived reality and the lived experiences that we find when we delve deep into the archives, into the buildings that they occupied and into the lives of these women. They were far more than two-dimensional characters defined by simply what they should do, but were complex, fascinating, resilient, ambitious and successful women in their own rights. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To learn more about the women who changed history at English Heritage sites, click the link in the episode description. Next week, we're exploring the story of the Roman forts along Hadrian's Wall and what life would have been like for the soldiers stationed there. Thanks for listening. See you next time.